on the bottom. Okay. I was, uh, I was thinking, um, that's always exciting. Uh, it's always exciting. And McKenna, just know, uh, anytime you have something that, that we all need to know about, you want to share with us, or it's just on your heart, let us know. You're always invited in here. You're, not, you're never going to be subjected to the basement. Um, my wife worked in the dungeon for 12 years herself, so I understand. Yes, I just called our basement a dungeon. Yes, I did do that. It's true. If you've been down there and hung out, you know. Um, I was thinking, actually, during worship at the beginning. Every once in a while, you'll see me uh, snag my phone um, during worship, and there's always a reason for that. Typically, it's because I have five sisters, and they all start a group chat during the service. And I just wonder, do you know what I do for a living? Why are you texting me? I'm not going to reply. But the other reason would be I, I get a thought. And with me, if I don't like capture that thought instantly, it goes away. <laughs> and I never remember it again. And so I was thinking, you know, this next few weeks, uh, kind of what we're doing um, is, is kind of old school. And, and the, the word, the name, Fireside Chat came to mind. Um, the old FDR thing that other people have, have tried to duplicate and whatever else, whether you loved him or hated him politically, that's not the point. The point is what he did, just this intimate sit down, talk with people as if he's right there in your home. And that's kind of what we're doing today with what we're going to be talking about. All right. So I want you to imagine with me, if you will, that someone today came up and shared Jesus with you. I shared with you his story. Now, we like to talk about this a lot of different ways, but in all honesty, the story of Jesus is very, very simple. It's not this big, long, complex, religious thing that we make it. The story of the gospel is quite simple. And so maybe they began in John chapter 1, and they just gave you just a little piece of who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things, all things were made. Without him, nothing that was made has been made. In him was life. And this life was the light of all mankind, the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Though John wrote those words over 2,000 years ago, the darkness that exists in this world today has not overcome the light of Jesus. Thank God for that. So they go on and they share with you a little bit of the story of Jesus as the Son of God. And then what he did, he came, he chose to come to this earth to give up everything, subjecting himself to a human body, to a human life, to the human experience while giving up everything that he had in heaven. He lived a perfect life here on earth in perfect relationship with his heavenly Father, all the while teaching, healing, instructing loving, forgiving, and even correcting those that he was trying to reach out to. Ultimately, he submitted himself to his very own creation, and he allowed himself to be killed, to be murdered on a cross. Why? Well, so that he could save you and I. You see, this is an incredible, incredible story, and they went on just a little bit further and in case you're like, oh, that's all good and neat, and they, they decided to make it personal for you, and they said, well, now here's the reason why Jesus did these things. They shared with you that every single human being misses the mark. We call that sin. We don't get things quite right. We all fall short of the glory of God, and we all need forgiveness. And that can only be found in our right relationship with God through Jesus, his son. Jesus provides the only path to forgiveness. He provides the only path to salvation. Jesus provides the only path to heaven. Now, what if somebody came up 
and shared that with you today. Now, many of you in the room probably, well, well, yeah, I know a lot of that. Okay, all right. But let's pretend it was your first time. Let's pretend that the Spirit was moving in that conversation, and at the end of that conversation, you were like the people on the day of Pentecost. You're like, oh my goodness, what do I do with this information? I am cut to the heart. I cannot believe that someone did this for me. And you respond to the gospel, and you give your life to Christ. You surrender to him. You repent of your sin. You submit to him through the waters of baptism and become a follower of Jesus, all from that one little conversation. But then what? What happens after that moment, after you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Was that it? Is that all that God intends for us? Is this one momentary maybe experience, if you will, and then, well, you're on your own? Or is there more to it? What do you do? How do you learn? How do you grow? How are you challenged in your walk with Christ? How can you be certain that what you're being taught or what you're learning is of God and not of man? These are difficult questions to arise. In this world, do you go to church? You hear so many bad things about church. Is it even something worth pursuing? And if so, if you think maybe, well then how on earth would you ever decide which church to go to? There's 33,000 different flavors. If you walk into Baskin and Robbins and you have 31 flavors, you can't figure out which kind of ice cream you want. How will you possibly be able to pick a church to help you grow? That's where we're at right now. We just finished this study on biblical church membership. There's no doubt at all that the early church, when it was first created, that these people belonged to a local gathering of believers. They were known by each other. They were known by the leadership, by the pastor. Those were their shepherds. They watched over them. They cared for one another. There's no doubt about those things at all. And through this series, we shared the role that the local church should provide. Now, one of those things, um, one, of the, one of the ways I heard this presented from another church years ago was uh, they actually presented this as a part of a series, uh, this church membership idea for, hey, the reality says in our culture that a lot of people are going to move. And while you might be having a great church experience right now and you have a church home and you love it, hey, here's some things that if you end up moving or going off on your own or something like that, here's some things to look for in a church when you go to find a new one which I think is a great way to present that because we do live in that kind of world. But we talked about the local church and what the local church is part of this relationship is. This is to be a covenant membership between the people and the church, the body of Christ. We're supposed to care for each other in that way that no matter, we both agree to this agreement, this partnership, but if either one fails, that's okay. We're still going to uphold our end of the agreement. That is this covenant relationship. Finally, the last week, we looked at the individual members and our roles as members within the church. God has placed every single person within the local body on purpose for a purpose, and it's not just to take up space. There's a ministry reason. There's a gospel reason why you are here today. So, if you're new to Berea or you just want to learn more about the church, I mentioned it earlier, but next week, right after the second service, we're going to have a a luncheon, a really informal luncheon. This isn't a class, a course. This is a chance for you to just get to know the leadership, the staff, um, and and ask any questions you might have about our particular church, some of which things we'll be answering, hopefully, in these next couple weeks together. So, to follow up this church membership idea, we got the idea that, hey, maybe it would be good to tell people about us about our church, the independent Christian church that you're part of. What is it? What are some of the basic fundamental beliefs of this 
kind of congregation? Why aren't we a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church or a Methodist church? Why, what makes us different? You see, for me, growing up, I grew up in a small Christian church very similar to this. And I never asked the question, what, what's a Christian church? Why, why does this, what does this matter? Why, why is this important? Never asked that question. I don't ever remember it being taught to me either. And so I guess we were both at fault. So I thought, you know, in a world where, honestly, we've got to know why it is we believe what we believe. We, we can't just put it out there and, and be challenged in our faith. I'm like, you know, I don't really know why it is that our church teaches this or believes that or why I believe this or that. This is important stuff for us and our growth and being able to share the gospel. And so we're going to do that. Now, one thing I want you to take very important note of. This will be the last time that I ever mention another denomination. This is not a comparison between the independent Christian church and fill in the blank with X, Y, or Z denomination. All we're going to do is explain who we are and why we believe what it is that we believe. And we're going to explain a few of the things that we do here all the time that you don't do in some other churches. That is all. What we want you to note, and we hope that you experience, is that you experience a little bit of the spirit that this movement began from, and that is simply this, the spirit of Christian unity. There is no division in this. There, is no, there will be no compare and contrast. This is just who we are as a church. And as it just so happens, our very own McKenna Kitson, who was up here moments ago, one of the very last courses that she had to take, and I do mean have to take, if you go to Lincoln Christian University, you must take a course on the restoration movement in order to graduate. That is the movement that birthed our church, surprisingly, not all that long before our church itself was born in 1892. This was a movement that started in the late 1700s and, and wound up ending about the middle of the 1800s, just prior to the Civil War. Gets you an idea about unity, right, we're talking about in this context. And so here is a, a, I stole a paragraph from her final paper for that class to just kind of briefly give you an overview as we get started. She said, and I quote, at its core, the restoration movement is seen as centered around John 17. In this passage, John tells, Jesus, tells of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, detailing three key elements that the restoration movement was founded upon. First, in this passage, Jesus speaks of sanctifying the truth. Within the restoration movement, this is seen as the restoration of biblical authority, focusing on the scriptures as the foundation for everything we say and do. Secondly, Jesus prays for unity among all believers in John 17, an emphasis that is referred to as recognizable Christian unity. And then finally, the passage emphasizes the overarching call for all believers to worldwide evangelism. The Restoration Movement sees this idea of evangelism to the world as a crucial part of their faith life, and as a result, it is common throughout the movement. So these three principles, sanctifying the truth, the recognition of biblical authority. Secondly, unity among believers, recognizable, observable, demonstrable Christian unity. And then third, a call for all believers to worldwide evangelism. Now this is born out of John 17, Jesus' final prayer. If you turn to chapter, or chapter 17, verse 20, I'm going to read a small segment of that passage. My prayer is not for them alone, the disciples, Jesus is praying about. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. We are here today because the disciples carried on the message of God. It's an incredible thing we'll talk about in a moment. 
That all of them, all of them, all of these believers may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you have given me, that they might be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. When the wor- then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, this paints a beautiful picture of the future. Jesus is praying about the future church that will be born very soon, a future that would begin to take shape in just a few hours as Jesus is led out of that garden, ultimately wrongfully tried, tortured, and executed, a future that would take a very drastic turn three days later as this same Jesus arises from the grave and then meets with his disciples, and then a future that would officially kick off 50 days from that day, Whenever the day of Pentecost happened and Peter preaches that first ever gospel sermon to thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. And as he shares with them the life story of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, 3,000 people were cut to the heart. And they asked those apostles, what on earth do we need to do with this information? We have to respond now. The church kicked off in a very, very large way. The event had taken place at the end of the Passover season, Pentecost as we call it, the Festival of Weeks, as it was called. This was the the symbolic end of the Passover time period. All Jewish males were required to attend this festival. So Jerusalem had once again become this massive, massive city. It wasn't always that case, but Jews were always making pilgrimages back for these large festivals. There was a huge crowd. God's timing was absolutely perfect as it always is, so that most people could hear that gospel message on that very first day. And we read the last few weeks what happened after that. These people joined, and all of a sudden, they had this giant community of people that seemed to have everything in common. They hung on every word of the apostles as they preached And they taught. Everyone was filled with this awe and wonder of everything that was going on. They met together every day. They went to the temple. They met together in each other's homes and they broke bread. They had this covenant relationship with one another. And as a result, they enjoyed the favor of God and God added to their number daily those that were being saved. Now, there's two things that I want you to note from this whole thing. This giant festival had happened, and so everybody came to Jerusalem. Now we read weeks, maybe months, even later, everyone is still together, which means no one had gone home. Everyone is staying in Jerusalem. Now, this is a very key point. As I ask you this question, I want to ask you about this newly formed church because that is what it is. It's the church. It's the birth of the church. Did it have any structure to it at all? Did this brand new church have bylaws? Did it have creeds? Did it have confessions of faith? It did not. No, it had the apostles who were very quickly becoming overwhelmed by the work of taking care of the church. And so they began to appoint another layer of leadership to help them with the daily duties of the church. Now, if we were to observe this very, very early Christianity, it probably would have looked very, very, very Jewish because it was. That's all they knew was how to be Jewish and how to worship like Jews worship. And so they brought their newfound belief in Jesus and they combined it with their Jewish faith. And that's what church would have looked like in those early days. 
And you must remember there's nothing more pure, more organic, more simple than the birth of that early church. But understand, that was not what God had intended for them. Even that very first church was not everything that God intended. And how do we know that? We know that because of Jesus' final words to his disciples, which began with the word, go. <laughs> go, Matthew 28, 19, and make disciples, not stay in Jerusalem. If God's timing was perfect, if everybody followed God's lead perfectly, then after those 3,000 had gotten saved, guess what would happen? All of them would have went back home and began to spread the good news of the gospel right away, but that didn't happen, did it? If you know the story, what had to happen was an incredible arise of persecution of the early church, starting with the stoning of Stephen. And then everyone was scared to death and ran home. And guess what they did when they ran home? They took the good news with them. And they began to share the good news across the entire Roman Empire and even the known world. It spread. Now I ask again, did these individuals and families that were traveling home, did they have a religious or a denominational structure to build the church on? Did they have letters from the apostles on how to set up a church, how to function, what requirements were for the leaders? The answer is no, not yet anyway. So what did they have? How could they start a church? How could they go and begin these relationships with other people? Well, they had a few things. They had what they'd been taught by either the apostles or another believer that shared Jesus with them first. They had the power of their testimony. We often lose sight of how powerful our story and our relationship with God can be in trying to reach others. And oh yeah, they had the gift of the Holy Spirit within them to spread this newfound church. Interesting how they were able to be so successful. Now, some of them might have had some Jewish influence, some Jewish upbringing, some knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. So what happened? What happened to this early church? Well, in those early days, it thrived. Even in the face of relentless persecution, the church, without its organization, without its structure, without its bylaws and confessions and creeds, the early church grew like wildfire. It became a threat to even the Roman government itself, so they thought. People learned and accepted the love of Jesus. And then gradually, men like Paul and the other disciples did begin carrying those news, that news to the entire empire and across the world. Paul did plant churches. He did set up some systems and structures so that the church could reach people, so the church could handle disputes, could train leaders, and more. Many of those documents, Paul's letters, are found in our modern Bible. And thus the church, as we know it, was born. Now, there's more than 2,000 years of church history between that moment and where we are today and our movement and how it began. And as time goes on, I'll get to share bits and pieces of that 2,000 years of church history because, honest to goodness, it is fascinating. Even if you don't love history, think of it this way. It is an absolute miracle that the church even exists today. It is an absolute miracle that the Word of God exists today for you and I. It should not be here. The world has tried and tried to destroy the church, tried to destroy God's Word since it was created. And yet here we are. And so its history is truly fascinating but what we're going to do is share just a little bit, beginning today, about who we are, 
how our movement got started and some of our most basic beliefs as an independent Christian church. And so we'll start with this, the Bible. The Bible is the only document that the Christian church relies upon for her structure, for her beliefs, her criteria for leaders, and on. We believe that the Bible is indeed the absolute inspired Word of God, that it is fully and completely trustworthy in all of its parts, and we accept the Bible as our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. This is an important distinction for us. It's who we are. There's a wonderful passage that just describes this characteristic of the Bible so simply in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But as for you, continue in what you've learned. This is Paul writing to his apprentice, his son in the faith, Timothy, a pastor, and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you heard it, how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We believe that is what we stand on. That is what we need in this life. Now, you, like me, if you've gone here for a while, have probably been asked the question, what denomination is your church? Well, it's a hard question to ask because anytime you're, or to answer, because anytime you're online and you're filling out a survey, and there's always a check mark for Christian church. But to be completely honest, we really are not a denomination by its very term itself. We don't have a name like a denomination, but rather we use one of the names, not the only name, one of the names given to early believers. First, in the city of Antioch, Acts chapter 11, 26, the believers were first called Christians in Antioch. As a restoration movement, we have not broken with any particular group and tried to reform or change that group. In fact, early participants in this movement came from all kinds of different denominations, and their ideas were to simply not an attempt to reform or to change a denomination, but rather to restore what they viewed as the original early first century church. Now, is that a possibility? Well, in a lot of ways, no, because we can't go back to the first century and live in those times. Times have changed, and so must the church. But there was to get back to those ideals of the first church. The original movement began between 1794 and 1835. Again, our church was founded in 1892. Six separate groups of people all across this country, and actually some folks from across the pond as well, were part of this. They were all organized without any knowledge whatsoever of one another. However, all six cases were organized around the same basic principles. They wanted to organize a group that might restore the New Testament church based on on what is recorded in God's Word and God's Word alone. In every single one of those independent examples, they all arrived at the name Christians for their members. And then they also came up with some names for their various churches. It was either Christian Church, Church of Christ, or Disciples of Christ. Now, please note that some of those have become denominational organizations, haven't they? That was not the intent of the original founders. Their baptism was by immersion for the remission of their sins. The Lord's Supper was observed on the first day of every week. And all of this came about without any knowledge that other folks were doing this same thing until eventually they all did meet up. Now, how on earth could that happen? How could all these people independently come up with the exact same principles and foundational ideas? Well, it's actually pretty easy to explain. 
they all were using the exact same blueprint. It's called the Bible. Very simply, they were just using the Bible, and those were the things that they pulled out of it that seemed to make sense. Were all of these movements identical? Of course not. They were made of people. We're all different, right? Were their ideals perfect? Some would contend they were. I will not. Okay, guys, I'm a heretic now in the restoration movement, but I would contend they were not perfect. Why? Because only the church that Jesus established is perfect. And no matter how hard we try to become the church that Jesus established, we are not Jesus, therefore we will fall short. But it's still a noble goal for sure. The biggest thing was all of these groups came together and found that they had what each other all considered all of the essential things in common. And they were quite surprised by that. And they sought to use God's word as their only guide, and thus it began. As was popular in that era of history, any movement, whether government or otherwise, they all had to come up with slogans. They had to come up with catchy little phrases that kind of threw out there what you stood for, and our movement was absolutely no different. It was an easy way to share some of the things that they wanted to share with large groups of people. So, the, one of the very early ones was, no headquarters but heaven, no creed but Christ, no book, but the Bible. And they wanted to let people know that we don't have some outside governing body that we answer to. We only answer to God. We wanted people to know that our desire was simply to please God alone, to follow Jesus alone, and trust in his words alone. A second foundational slogan, if you will, where the scriptures speak, we speak. Where the scriptures are silent, we are silent. Now, our goal, as was theirs, is to let the word of God speak for itself. We shouldn't try to write things into the Bible that don't already exist. One of the ways you will see that come out in this context is you will see quite often us talking about the context of a passage. We have to understand where this came from, the people that were being addressed, specifically what was being addressed. It's still applicable to us, but we have to understand the context side of it. This is so important in our culture today. You can watch the news and you can listen to other people that claim the name of Christ and yet you scratch your head going, that's not what the Bible says. Why is that? Well, it's because they're either inferring, they're creating, inventing, or they're just flat out twisting and lying about what Scripture says in order to promote some type of social agenda. And we have to be very careful of that and that's why we stick to God's Word alone. But the last one of these slogans is, is my favorite and it's probably one of the most famous ones from the movement. In matters of faith, unity. In matters of opinion, liberty. And in all things, charity. Which is from the Latin word caritas, which means Christian love. It's an incredible slogan. Matters of faith, Romans 10 17. Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Matters of faith are things that are specifically spelled out for us through God's Word, through the teachings and examples of Christ, through the commands of Jesus, and thus through the teachings of the apostles as well. And as Christians, big C, we should all be unified around these matters. Then comes the matters of opinion. Those are just that. Everyone, God is entitled, He's given us free will. We are all entitled to our opinions. And believe it or not, some of our opinions might actually be correct. It can happen. But here's the thing. We can never impose these opinions on others as a test of faith. Their opinions. Now, as a pastor over the last many years now, I've found 
that there's a lot of believers especially, and people that are maybe seeking but just trying to be confrontational, that really want to just talk about little points of contention, right? They just want to talk about little things, the particulars. They love to get hung up in those particulars. I don't have any problem discussing those with people for a very limited amount of time. And I have no problem walking away from those discussions completely agreeing to completely disagree with you about those things. Because here's the reality. If the thing we're discussing is not salvific, meaning if what we're talking about does not threaten my salvation, your salvation, or our ability to go out and seek to sa- and save the lost for Christ, then honestly, whatever it is we're discussing is of secondary importance to the gospel of Jesus, and we really need to put it in the past and move forward with our mission, which is to seek and save the lost. Let's focus on the main thing. His name is Jesus. Man, if more churches, if more people would do that, this world would be changed, wouldn't it? Then finally, in all things, love. Is that not the heart of the gospel? For God so loved the world. He gave us bylaws? No. (laughs) No. He gave us his son. Now, for those of you that like a few more specifics, I thought I'd throw out a few for you guys and gals that like those kinds of things, some specific foundational principles from our movement. Again, it's so important for us to know why it is we believe what it is that we believe and understand these ideals are not perfect. They are man-made, but they're an attempt to go back to basic biblical Christianity. The first one, the church of Christ, not the one in town, the church of Christ on earth is one. We talked about this last week, the church universal, and all who are Christians are members of this church. Please notice that it does not say that we, the members of the independent Christian church, are the only Christians on planet earth. That is not a stance that we take. It is never has been a stance that we take. And if a denomination tells you that, then scratch your head and ask them, well, who gave you the authority to be the one and only? Did Jesus come and like establish you? And there's some that might say that. But I would question them and probably go to another church as a result. Although the church does exist in many different distinct societies, it has to. The church is going to be different in different places, in different congregations. But there is only one big C church, this church universal that we talked about. So here's the thing. There's going to be divisions, yes, But the divisions cannot be uncharitable. They cannot be unkind, spiteful, or mean-spirited divisions. Now, those of you that have been around church for a long time know that almost every division you've heard of in a church was uncharitable, spiteful, vengeant, mean, cruel, you name it, and had absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. And that's what they were trying to prevent from the very beginning how would this be possible? How could you possibly have divisions in the church and them not be, be some kind of animosity between those divisions? Well, it's very simple. You shouldn't be required anything except what is in the Word of God. And beyond that, you can have those divisions and they can be completely charitable because it's not a division over the Word of God. Where the Scriptures speak, we speak. Our church is a New Testament church. We acknowledge the Old Testament, we use the Old Testament, we teach from the Old Testament, but who we are as a church, the authority is the New Testament, the New Covenant. We always have to balance that with the words of Jesus, because you'll hear a lot of New Testament churches just throw out the Old Testament like it doesn't matter, it doesn't exist. And I, again, would caution you, 
if that's what you're listening to, because Jesus did not throw the baby out with the bathwater. He kept it a very real part. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Those are Jesus' words, not Chris's, not the restoration movement, not Berea Christian Church. Those are the words of Christ. I would take heed of them. A fifth one, where the scripture is silent, no human authority has the power to interfere. Now, we mentioned this earlier, but we are not called or permitted to fill in the so-called gaps that we see in the teachings of Jesus. His teachings are enough. Do they cover everything under the sun? We could debate that. But typically what you find is the areas where people want to insert or add in are things that are addressed. They just want to change the way in which they were addressed because they didn't like what Scripture has to say about those items. So I would contend that those items really don't exist in the first place. A fun one? We all have our opinions. We all have our interpretations of God's Word. But we cannot confuse our interpretation of God's Word with what God's Word actually says. Now again, our opinion might be right. It can happen from time to time. But it's not formally binding on the consciousness of someone else. There's a distinction between what is expressly shared, declared in Scripture and a conclusion that we draw from those distinctions. That's an important thing for us to understand. On to the world of creeds. Many of you grew up in a lot of different backgrounds, okay? Lots of different theology that, that you've been taught and things like that. Creeds, things like that, might be, as they said back in the day, highly expedient. We do not use that word any longer. They might be very practical. They might be very convenient. They might even be useful. But they shouldn't be made terms of Christian fellowship. Here's the important thing for us. Our movement from the very beginning was always seen as something that was anti-creeds and confessions because of the denominations that they left, if you will, to start this movement. And we may appear to oppose such things. But here's the reality. We truly don't have anything against most of them. There are some that are in violation, contradiction to Scripture. That's another topic for another day. But here's what the original founders of this movement were against. They were against the oppression of these creeds upon the people, the abuse and not the lawful use of such things. The reality is many creeds do a great job of explaining some really fundamental biblical Christian principles. And for that, they are to be praised and absolutely used. If you helps you focus, helps you learn, helps you grow. They explain these key doctrine of the church sometimes very, very well. But they can't be held as equal to or above God's word. And that's what man has done with man's words. The last few, division among Christians is evil. Now, this was a very staunch stance 
that our movement took from the very beginning. Division among Christians is evil. When they started this movement back in the early 1800s, there were over 1,200 different denominations of Christians. Compare that to today. Over 33,000 different ones. Do you see Satan's plan in that? Not that the 33,000 are wrong or leading people astray. That's not it at all. But the fact that there's so many confuses the people that don't know Jesus yet. Where do I go? Who's right? Who's wrong? It keeps them from even believing on many times. So why? Why do so many people disagree on matters of faith? Well, here's the reality. Most times, most times, it has very, very little to do with what the Bible actually says. Most disagreements between denominations and faith traditions come with things that have been added to the Bible and at times even lifted above the authority of Scripture itself. If you look at some of the controversies right now in major mainline divisions, tell me that's not true. (laughs) They're lifting the doctrines of man over what Scripture actually says and you see the result of those national campaigns. It's a very sad Sad thing. Now, these people that laid out these principles came up with one last thing that they had to throw in. What if, and I hate that comment, but what if God's word doesn't address something within the church? What if there's something that really, 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 really needs to be addressed, but there's just not a text to go to to find that in the Bible? Well, they came up with kind of a philosophy for that too. Okay? It's actually very simple. They said, well, on a practical level, we need to use biblical principles, biblical guidelines, things like that to form our opinion in this matter. But when we do that, when we do that, we have to let people know and disclose that this opinion is just that. It is of human expedience. It is a human method. It is a human way. It is a human decision. We got to tell people that, and we cannot allow that kind of thing to divide the church. So in our context, things like that would be simple things from start time to song sung to color of the carpet to color of the chairs to color of the walls to the size of the communion cups to the size of the loaves of bread, all of which are things that have split churches before, by the way. And those are all human ideas, things that we have to address, practical, normal things that just aren't in God's word, that we can't defend from from Scripture that should be or shouldn't be this or that. Do you see how these controversies within the church are just plain sinful? Not silly, but sinful. To sum it up, too often the church spends a lot of time making the most noise about everything that we stand against. And there absolutely is a time and a place for us to rise up and challenge something. It's called evil. We must do that. We're called to do that. But our loudest voice should be declaring who we stand for. His name is Jesus. And who we stand with, believers across this world, churches, big C, universal, across this globe. And so if somebody comes up to you at some point in time, and they just might now as we begin this series, and ask, hey, do you think because you go to that Christian church over there that you're the only Christians, you're the only people going to heaven? I got two things that I'd love for you to share with them, okay? The first one is simply this. Well, it's one of our founding principles, quite honestly, 
No, 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 we, we are not the only Christians. And one little further note, we are, though, Christians only. We're not this and that, and that we, we are simply just Christians. But then I want you to turn the table on them, because this is an important part of our movement. I want you to turn to ask them a question. Well, you asked me a question, I answered honestly. Can I ask you a question? Okay, sure. Has there ever been a time in your life where you have made a personal decision to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Go ahead and ask them that. Because depending on where they're at in life, whether they don't know Jesus or maybe even where they grew up in the church, they may have never made a personal decision to connect with Christ. And this is essential to the gospel. And so if you haven't made that commitment, today is the day. I just ask you the question. If you've never stepped forward and confessed the name of Christ, then man, there's nothing greater in the world that you could do. And it's the purpose of all the big C churches to share the gospel message of Jesus and bring those into the family that do not yet know him. Father God, as we look at us, as imperfect as we are, it's so important for us to know who we are and what we believe. This world is going to challenge us, it's going to confront us, and if, if we don't know, if we're left wanting for answers and we don't immediately turn to your word, and Father, we're at risk. We're at risk of leading them astray. We're even at risk of possibly losing our own faith. We have to know why it is we believe what we believe. While our founders, if you will, were not perfect their intentions, I'm sure, were not pure because they were human. None of us have completely pure thoughts. But Father, they were pursuing you and you are pure. And you, you tell us you will honor our ways. When, we, when our desires of our heart are to follow you, you will honor and bless our ways. And thus, here we are, hundreds of years later, continuing that tradition, trying to do our best to make your word the thing that we stand on alone, to make the story and life sacrifice of your son the main thing, of who we are, to reach out to those that don't know you, not just here in our community, but across this world. Those, those founding principles ring true here. And I pray if there's anyone here that's never made that ultimate decision to make you their Lord and Savior, then I pray that today is the day that they come forward and your spirit moves in them to a point of belief and salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.